In this episode of Emergence, I'll talk to Clara Saville of The Brook about the WHO Sustainable Development Goals. And I'll also talk about a recent presentation by the OIE giving an update on their COVID-19 activities. Welcome to the Emergence podcast, brought to you by MSD Animal Health and hosted by me, Alistair King. The views expressed during this podcast are those of my guests and myself. They do not necessarily reflect the views of the company. A couple of weeks ago, the OIE gave an update on their activities during COVID-19 and the new work programmes. This is a good follow-on from the podcast with Dr Matthew Stone, Deputy Director General for the OIE, that you have already hopefully listened to. Therefore, I wanted to tell you some of my key takeaway points from that. However, before we do that, in July... The Brook hosted a webinar on strengthening animal health systems to accelerate progress towards the WHO Sustainable Development Goals during the United Nations High-Level Political Forum on Sustainable Development. With Dr. Dopp, Deputy Director General of the OIE, and Sarah Cleveland as keynote speakers, a panel of experts and politicians from a number of countries, and over 450 attendees, this really focused on the interdependence of human and animal health. The One Health, One Welfare approach of this webinar interested me and I therefore tuned in to what was a great and informative meeting. Originally, I had planned on talking with Benson Amida, who is the president of the Africa Veterinary Technical Association, on what messages he took from the seminar and how it tied in with the importance of paraprofessionals in Africa. Unfortunately, there's just too much interference on our recording, so I can't use it. However, I had such a good discussion with Clara Saville, head of global animal health at the Brook, initially just on why they arranged this meeting, but then diverging off onto experiences in Africa, that I'm going to let you hear more of that. Then I'm going to have Benson on a later podcast, because his experience is crucial if we're going to improve animal and human health in Africa. Clara, thanks for joining me. It's really good to have you here from the Brook, able to talk about the Strengthening Animal Health Systems to Accelerate Progress Towards SDGs seminar that you've just done. I think first, it'd be helpful for the listeners if you just explain what your role is with the Brook. Of course, yes. I am the head of global animal health, animal welfare, and community development. We very much have this holistic approach at Brook. And I am a veterinarian by training. I've worked as a farm vet in the past, uh, both in uh, university training institutions and in private practice. But I've been focused on animal health in international development for the last 10 years or so, uh, working on research projects in Kenya and Nigeria and subsequently for the last several years at, at Brook. But really in this role, I represent a wider team of um, UK-based and international experts in the in the fields of uh, animal health and welfare. I think it's your, your title, Head of Global Animal Health, it's interesting because the Brook, I, I knew of the Brook from when I was in the UK, but I've always thought of the Brook as donkeys and horses. That's how the Brook started up, rescuing horses after World, World War One. Clearly, you're looking at a much broader picture, although that's the main focus for the Brook. You're, you've got a broader picture now of what you're looking at in the world. Yes, and our mission remains working livestock. So the horses, donkeys and mules that provide much of the transport for people, water and food across the global south. But we recognise that these animals are part of a wider system and which has an impact on the health and welfare of uh, other animal species. So 
For example, we've been working, Brooke has been working at the front line of animal health systems for, for many years. And we, my international colleagues, directly mentor over 4,000 uh, animal health practitioners, vets and veterinary paraprofessionals. So, so we're really um, there uh, seeing the, the gaps in the animal health system. This mentoring framework is now being adopted by training institutions and, and national governments. And from the data that we've gathered and from our work with communities, we've really seen that wider picture of the implications of animal health systems that are not as, as strong as they can be. So with this initiative, we're looking at joining with um, other organisations that also may uh, work on other species. But we realise that this work that we can do at uh, an advocacy and external affairs level um, can help to accelerate programmes and, and partnerships um, that come up against um, hurdles uh, when we're working uh, in the field on the ground. And we have examples of projects where we've taken this approach before that have been really successful. So our data from the mentoring framework has shown that over 90% of the paravets that we work with in Kenya don't have access to the essential medicines that they need. So we formed a partnership uh, with Sadai, those who aren't familiar with Sadai, a fantastic social enterprise uh, in Kenya that have set up agrivet stores for quality medicines and supplies. They, of course, work on a, a broader livestock level. We made several attempts to get medicines specific for horses and donkeys, but they really weren't taken up. But by working with Sadai and addressing this whole issue, and, and in fact, it was an issue that these medicines weren't available for other livestock species, um, we were able to have more sustained impact across a wider region. And Sadai are now looking to um, roll out some of the programme that we developed uh, at a national level. And um, so we've got examples of how this approach has worked, having a broader um, aspect on our, our programmes as well as external affairs. That's really interesting working with Sadai. I know I worked with them through Galvmed, Global Alliance for Livestock Veterinary Medicine. And one of the things I've been pushing for a long time with Galvmed and others is it's about building this animal health network. It's not just about getting a vaccine available. We've got to do more than that and getting this wider view, this holistic view of what's going on rather than just targeting individual diseases. And that's where I think clearly when you're looking at sort of the SDGs and strengthening animal health systems, that's really going to give some of that support. I think that's a really good point. It's a, a conversation that's not as well rehearsed in, in veterinary medicine, but it's certainly been a focus of discussion in, in human health for a long time, this single disease focus versus trying to strengthen the, the whole system. There's been a lot of discussion about it with HIV, for example. It was great to have Sarah Cleveland as part of the um, event on at the UN High Level Political Forum, um, because rabies is a really compelling example of a, a One Health approach and a disease that, can, that we know how to tackle that disease. We just need more funding to do it. And it is also compelling because there's nothing that motivates funders and policymakers more than to sign up to eradicating a, a killer disease. So it grabs people's attention. But 
it's about using that power to then design an intervention that, as you say, strengthens the, the whole system and looks not just at developing this vaccine, but how you work with private practitioners and veterinary paraprofessionals who are already there on the ground and how also you work with communities to build trust. And so uh, I think that's something that we could develop more in the um, animal health sector, um, moving from that single disease focus to a strengthening across the whole system, but harnessing the advantages of, of both those approaches and really reaching a consensus on those policy priorities to, to be able to do that. And we've, we've started mapping those policy priorities as part of this uh, Action for Animal Health initiative, where we are working with um, other organisations to, to draft that uh, global action plan. Rabies is both the best example of One Health and the worst example of One Health. It's really incredible. <laughs> Because the best example in that we have shown, you vaccinate dogs, we break the cycle, we save dog lives, we save human lives, we save wildlife lives. It's just amazing what we can do. It's the worst example in that trying to get the funding, no one yeah. will bring up the funding because everyone sees it as someone else's responsibility. So it's a, that's a really major fight that I think that we're still facing. Yeah. This, this event that you did, say, strengthening animal health systems to accelerate progress towards the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals from the WHO, you had a great panel of people. You had Dr. Jean-Philippe Dopp from the OIE. You had Sarah Cleveland, as we've discussed. You had Dr. Papasek, who's technical advisor in Senegal. Raymond Briscoe, working in Afghanistan. You had a really nice range of people to talk about things. Did you see a good uptake of an interest in joining? Yes, it was remarkable, really. We had over 400 people who registered, and they were from approximately 40 countries. It was fantastic that so many people were able to participate. Uh, of course, it was an online event. We would have been in New York. But actually, I think we were able to have greater participation and involvement because it was an online event compared to the number of people that would have been in the room were we at the UN. Um, and it, um, the event, I hope, has sparked some further conversations and uh, opportunities to collaborate with others to really come together as a, as a sector to make this case for uh, a greater need for investment. We're living in difficult times at the moment. It's good to see some of these conferences managing to go to to online, and I think, as you say, you're managing to get more people coming as well. That's you know over 400 people registered and listening is an incredible amount. It would have been nice if it'd been New York; it'd have been around the corner from me. <laughs> but that's a lot of people, so that's good. Do you think that COVID nineteen is going to actually help us move forward from where we've been? I think this is the key question. Yes, COVID-19 has really shone a light on this growing threat from zoonoses, but also highlighted this really um, complex, interdependent, but beneficial relationship we have with animals. We depend on them for our food and in many cases, our livelihoods and also our uh, well-being. So it just seems to have raised the profile of animal health and animals 
um, living in good welfare for our um, existence. And I really hope that this is taken on board by policymakers and governments as they think about how to build that better after uh, COVID-19. Of course, it's not just COVID-19 that's the issue. We know that on a daily basis, um, particularly predominantly across the global south, people suffer from endemic um, zoonotic disease, and such as rabies that we've spoken about. And also in and of itself, we should care about uh, animal health and welfare. Um, we can use uh, opportunities to raise the profile of, of this. But I think as veterinarians and an animal health sector, uh, we intrinsically care about these things, not only for uh, economic benefit, but it we have to look at the economics to, to make this strong case. And your listeners may be aware of the Global Burden of Animal Disease project headed up by Professor Jonathan Rushton. We've recently joined that in partnership, and I think this is going to be a fantastic initiative to really make that economic that case for greater investment to be able to demonstrate how investment in animal health can um, offset the the burden that these diseases, as well as um, aspects like poor nutrition and injury, uh, can impact on on animal health. Every other sentence we you end up talking about people that I'm working with as well. I think we need to <laughs> line up a little bit more on some of this stuff. It would be really good. As you say, there's a duty of care I tend to talk about as a veterinary surgeon originally in practice and now working, working trying to control these One Health diseases. But it's broadened into this One Health, One Welfare because because we have this duty of care to the animals that, that do so much. So it's really good seeing what you're doing. How do you, how do you see animal health actually impacting on the sustainable development goals? I feel that ensuring animals are healthy is really critical to sustainable development and particularly for the world's uh, rural poor. And that's really a, a focus of this initiative on uh, smallholder farmers pro poor. And Professor Cleveland really highlighted this in um, her keynote speech at the event by saying that 400 million of the world's poorest people are dependent on livestock and actually access to quality, affordable animal health care is a really essential need for them. The Brook, you're looking at this collaborative kind of policy development. So you've launched a web page as well. There's an action for animalhealth.org. That's right. And we're really inviting open collaboration. This is a Brooke has initiated this approach, but we really want to welcome the rest of the uh, animal health sector um, to be part of this. Um, we're currently speaking to other organisations and drafting a global call for action that focuses on five priority policy areas, which um, I can talk through now. We want to focus on increasing and improving uh, the animal health workforce from Brooke's perspective, really highlighting the vital role of veterinary paraprofessionals as part of this workforce. We know that they work at the front line of, of animal health systems and are really a, a, a vital source. They're doing much of the work on the most part um, unsupervised by um, veterinarians. Uh, and it's important to support that vital workforce. 
The second priority is around really closing the veterinary medicines and vaccines gap, looking again at the work that they do in human health. The WHO has an essential medicines list, which is really checked regularly by um, uh, civil society organisations, and it it creates a real demand for um, uh, national governments to ensure that those essential medicines are available. Um, We don't have a similar equivalent um, at OIE level. And from our experience, um, there can be really either low levels of um, medicines available uh, or that they are generally of quite poor quality. Um, And of course, this has huge risks for antimicrobial resistance. If you're using a, a medicine that doesn't have the right active ingredients in, if any at all, and at um, different dosages, as well as vaccines. And so we've highlighted rabies vaccine availability as a key part of that. The third uh, policy area is around improving animal disease detection um, and the surveillance and and management of of that disease. Really, we need to be able to pick up epidemics and diseases in, in animals, as I said, in and of itself, but also for better production, economic prosperity, as well as this limiting then that spillover effect uh, into humans that we have so tragically seen with COVID-19. We do talk about enhancing collaboration for One Health, and we really, of course, support the One Health effort. This initiative around animal health systems is really looking at how we can raise up this sector to be able to participate uh, effectively uh, in One Health initiatives. At the moment, there is a a huge disparity in funding between animal health and human health. An example of that is OIE funding is at a level of 30 million euros per year, and that of the WHO is $3.4 billion. Of course, you would expect there to be a difference, but it really is a vast gulf (laughs) of a difference in, in funding. And then lastly, I'm I would argue perhaps most importantly, it's ensuring that we're working effectively with communities, the people who are directly taking care of the animals, the farmers who uh, depend on them, the the owners uh, of those animals, uh, to build that trust, but also the engagement so that they can both be involved in designing those animal health systems in a way that works for them, and also that they have the agency to hold people to account when those systems aren't working in the way that supports them. I love those pillars. They're all things I end up talking about. This community education and engagement during these podcasts with other people, it's been something I've referred to a lot. One of the early mistakes in trying to control diseases at these kind of levels was going in and just doing things as opposed to explaining to the livestock farmers, the smallholders, why they were doing them and what benefit are they going to get. So it's really key that we understand those communities and what what drives them and what's of importance to them rather than just what we think is important. Precisely, yes. And we've done a lot of work at Brook on um, community engagement models and the, and the best way to not just sort of go in and train people train at people but as you say really dig into something called the combi model so looking at what the capabilities 
are opportunities, but also motivations um, around, uh, and you can apply this model in many contexts, but of course around animal health and welfare is where we uh, have been applying this technique directly. The event as a whole, have you had any feedback after it? I know there, a lot, there were a lot of questions during the actual event as well. Um, yes, there were some fantastic questions. We only had an hour, so we elated all of the questions and are in the process of uh, answering them, and those will then be available on the Action for Animal Health website. Um, there'll also be a recording available uh, on that website, so if you missed it, uh, it's okay. It will be there, as well as a, a written summary. And since the event, I've, we've been um, engaging with even more stakeholders than we were speaking to um, before and having some really interesting conversations uh, around this uh, agenda. I'll put a link to, to that recording and the questions, I'll put that onto the text for the podcast as well so people can see that and can follow that as well. Thank you very much, Clara. From your side, is there one key message that you'd hope to get over? Um, I think as illustrated by the COVID-19 pandemic, it's far more effective to reduce or eliminate this risk of transmission from animals to humans rather than to manage a, a global pandemic disease outbreak. And really the time is now for us as the animal health sector to make this stronger case uh, for investment. Thank you very much, Clara. And thank you for joining me. Thank you. A few weeks ago, the OIE held a briefing on their activities during the pandemic COVID-19 crisis and the arising opportunities for OIE work programmes. It was led by Dr Matthew Stone, Deputy Director General of the OIE. They didn't only talk about the current pandemic, but also considered the lessons we can learn about preventing and controlling future risks. One key message was certainly that it is essential to ensure the continuation of trade between countries. To that end, the OIE have recommended that members work together in order to facilitate safe international movement of live animals and animal products. The countries should not introduce COVID-19-related sanitary measures unless and until it has been shown necessary to protect human and animal health, and that any measures are justified by risk analysis. And the countries should also continue to implement OIE standards while applying administrative flexibility. It is clear from their focus that safe trade is important for ongoing food security. In addition, the OIE has been committed to reinforcing the message that veterinary services are essential, and this came out as a key point as well. They recognise that maintaining good veterinary services is another key factor in ensuring a safe and secure food supply at this time. One of the things I found really interesting to listen to was around the development of an enhanced wildlife programme. It has been suggested that SARS, Ebola and now COVID-19 have all arisen through poorly regulated wildlife trade. In order to address this, the OIE are developing standards that will result in a more robust and ultimately safer trade process through incorporating sound guidance, risk analysis and risk risk assessment. They're able to do this by learning from existing programmes. For instance, the OIE have already been looking at wildlife surveillance through the ebo Circe programme on hemorrhagic diseases in Africa that we discussed with Dr Stone in the previous podcast. By building on their experiences, they're looking at mitigating the risk of disease spillover between wildlife, humans and livestock. And by incorporating management programmes along with robust governance, then the chances of another pandemic happening are reduced. The OIE summarised the situation with a wildlife health problem statement 
which states that emerging diseases from animal sources can have severe economic and health impacts. The diseases are spread through complex transmission pathways with impacts on both biodiversity and food system availability. That increasing contact between humans, livestock and wildlife has led to increased risk. And that this is exacerbated by intensified agriculture and livestock production, deforestation and land use change, illegal and under-regulated wildlife trade, climate change and antimicrobial resistance. It is recognition of all this that has led to the development of the OIE Wildlife Health Management Framework, with the objective to anticipate, reduce and manage the risk of spillover events of pathogens at the animal-human-environment interface. The seminar also recognised the broader negative impacts of the COVID-19 global response, namely there has been interruptions in surveillance activities and vaccination programmes, that there has been an increase in national economic fragility, that there is an increased insecurity in food and trade, and that there has been a weakening in global institutions. This is a concern because it means the progression towards controlling transboundary and emerging diseases may be put back, and we run the risk of seeing an increase in the prevalence of these diseases. It's something we all need to be aware of, and we need to do something about this to make sure it doesn't escalate. And that's it for this episode. I'm finding that talking to people like Clara is broadening my perspectives. If you have a subject you want covered, or someone you think we should talk to, then don't forget to get in contact. One last thing before I sign off. Keep your eyes open for our Rabies 360 challenge in September, leading up to World Rabies Day. We're hoping you will join in. We want to raise awareness that rabies is still such a big problem, but that we can eliminate it by working together. The Rabies 360 Challenge will call on everyone to do 360 of something, anything, whether it's miles, steps, skips, baking cakes or taking photos, whatever you want to do, as long as it incorporates 360. Watch our social media to learn what we're doing, and we're looking forward to hearing what you do. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Mm-hmm.